0: Well, I invite you to turn to Hosea chapter 4, Hosea chapter 4, um, so if you're flicking through and you find Ezekiel, then you'd stop and then start going forward to Daniel and then Hosea, so it should be easy to find, Hosea chapter 4, failing that you can look up the index. And we're going to read uh, down to chapter 5, verse 7, which I think forms a united section. And uh, let's hear what God says. Hear the words of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy or controversy with the inhabitants of the land There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no, no one contend, and let no none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I'll destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore. But not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord, to cherish whoredom, wine, the new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their gods to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains, and burn offerings on the under oak, poplar and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I'll not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, Let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal or go up to Beth-Avon and swear not as the the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in, in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, and I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. They have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Let's pray. Father, we come to a sobering passage this evening and uh, we pray once again that you'd, uh, even though it's sobering, that you would encourage us through it. You'd help us to see uh, the way to relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're picking up Hosea once again. And um, the first three chapters that we've looked at, um, the... God is keen to communicate the, how, what sort of state the relationship is between God and his people. And he does that through the medium of the marriage of Hosea to Gomer. And as it were, it's uh, Hosea going after Gomer is a, a kind of acted out parable of what God is seeking to do with Israel. It also highlights the sins of Israel. How they have drifted from God. But God has gone to seek them out. And um, so so this is the situation with Israel. That Israel has gone after other lovers. Israel has given herself uh, to these other gods. The gods of the nations. The gods all around. And um, that's the, the root of her sins if you like she has given up the covenant relationship that God has established with them but then the other thing we've seen so far is that God's purposes are not thwarted by this unfaithfulness of uh, the people of Israel and Judah Uh, there's actually a far bigger picture at play that God's promises have not failed and that uh, uh, the picture looks far into the future and uh, there we begin to see God's salvation uh, coming and we begin to get the inklings of the new covenant uh, that we saw that in uh, the end of chapter 2 into chapter uh, chapter 3 that God is creating something new and uh, it comes to fullness I think in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31 uh, and so on But uh, here, Hosea, who's a bit earlier than Jeremiah, um, begins to hint at this new covenant that's coming. As we move into chapter four, then, we kind of, in a sense, there's a change that uh, Hosea and Gomer uh, disappear from the story. And what we're left with is, is God dealing directly with his people. And chapters 4 through to 11 and it's going to be a long run now from 4 through to 11 is a sequence of messages that God wants to give to his people on a number of topics um, all of which are I think intensely relevant to us and um, you know it's, it's not going to be easy so when you come in the evenings uh, you know you need to gird up your loins a bit and get ready because uh, it's going to be hard going uh, some of it is quite difficult stuff and, uh, but I trust that God is going to help us it's there for a reason uh, to help us uh, that the, the word of God may speak to us maybe to our own hearts about issues in, in terms of our relationship with God and uh, I hope that you're open to that and I hope you're ready for it so we're going to look at uh, 4.1 through to 5, seven. and it, again it makes for difficult reading there's, there's not a great deal that's Encouraging, though I think there's a a note of encouragement, which I'll come to at the end. But um, what we need to learn here is is how seriously God takes the covenant relationship between himself and his people. That God is a holy God. And that God requires certain things of his people in this covenant relationship that he's established. Uh, he deserves, we'll think about this this morning actually, uh, God deserves our whole lives. He deserves our worship. He deserves our praise. He deserves our living for him. And, and in this passage we also learn just how important uh, spiritual leadership is for the people of God. That uh, if, the, if the spiritual leadership is healthy, then the people can be healthy. Um, but we also learn just how sheep-like the people are generally, that if they're misled by priests and prophets, then they simply find it easy to go astray uh, and follow what the leaders do. And so we learn that uh, in the end, God comes in judgment over all of this, if it's allowed to persist. Now all of this of course does have uh, significance I think for the present day people of God that that leadership in churches really matters. Uh, Godly leadership really matters in a church for the health of the church. And that the greatest responsibility lies on those who are given to positions of leadership in the church. It's an awesome thing I think to be uh, an elder or a minister in a church, an awesome responsibility. And um, We'll come to that in a moment. But let's begin by looking at the first three verses here. And God God brings a charge against the people of Israel. He is uh, going to challenge them. And he, he issues this big call for the people to hear. Hear the words of the Lord, O children of Israel. Come, hear the word of the Lord. Listen, pay attention. God is summoning the people. He's summoning them as individuals. The children of Israel. He's calling them to listen to each one. So you and I this evening, we need to sit and listen to God. And get into the habit of listening to God. And the reason that God is calling them, uh, these Israelites, at this point, is that God has a controversy, or controversy, how do you say it? Depends on whether you're American or not. <laughs> How do you say it? Um, you know, controversy. God has this controversy with His people, and uh, you may remember the background that we've covered already. That uh, this is about 700 BC or so, uh, somewhere between 740 and 700 BC, and you know, there's been a declension, a spiritual declension in the people of God since the high days of David, 300 years before. David was about 1040 BC thereabouts. Uh, to about 1000 BC. And 300 years later there's been a serious decline in the spiritual health of uh, the Old Testament people of God. And it's described in this way. That Israel is like a wife that has, has left her husband and found another man. And gone off with other lovers. And uh, is having a high old time. And Israel is like that wife. Israel has drifted away from God and they've begun to look and act just like the nations all around and so God has a controversy controversy with the people you know there's a question we can ask today can, does God have a controversy with us? could he have a controversy with the church of Jesus Christ today? and it's an interesting I think it's interesting because I've known many Christians who would be, or people who profess to be Christian, who would be shocked at the idea that God could have a controversy with his people in the church today. And I think that's especially true if you have a 2D picture of God, you know, a cardboard cutout picture of God. That God is a God of love. And He indeed, he is a God of love. He is love. But if all, if the, the problem with the 2D cardboard cutout version of God is you tend to define Love the way you like love to be defined And so your picture of God is, is really a picture of you Because it's what you like And it's about what you think love should be You see this so much in the present day to day And <clears throat> The fact is that God is not like that Yes he is a God of love But he is a God of holiness a God of power and might of grace and mercy a whole lot of things and so when he is in the, comes face to face with sin and especially the sins amongst his people then he has a controversy with his people and that's an expression of God's holy love if God is in covenant with his people then he expects that relationship to be honored with his people and when his people drift away then he has a controversy with them God has committed himself to his people in covenant that is the significance of covenant isn't it God condescending says the confession coming down to us but we in turn respond to him. And God's obligations are on us to respond to him rightly. <clears throat> so we see this, we actually see this covenant as he begins to spell, God begins to spell out the nature of the controversy. Because at the end of verse 1, and it will we're not going to take this long over all the verses, you'd be glad to know, I hope. But... We're not going to cover everything, but I just want, this sets the scene really. And the second half of verse 1 says, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. These are basic covenantal commitments that the people of God make to God to be faithful. uh, To exercise steadfast love towards God and towards his people. To know God he wants these things in us the, the idea between this steadfastness this, this sorry this faithfulness is the idea of truth that, that being true being being a person who is true and true to all that you have said and committed to is vital in the people of god a basic commitment to loyalty and devotion to god is what's meant thereby uh, by faithfulness, or steadfast love—that uh, self-giving love that God has shown to us—well, we, in return, we give self of ourselves to Him in love and honour Him in everything that we we seek to do. And then there's knowledge of God. You know, God doesn't want us to know just a, you know a few things about God. <laughs> You know, the basic is, there's a God in heaven. Okay, great, let's just go on with life. No, he wants us to know more than that. He wants us to know not just about God, but he wants us to know God, to know him, to know him better than you know your wife or your husband or any other human relationship that you could possibly have. To know God. And this is, this is what true freedom is. This is what, what human, where human beings find true freedom and true fulfillment. How do I know that? Well, Jesus tells us in John 17, verse 3, in his prayer to his father, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, verse 3. That's eternal life. I think I've told you this before, but when I was a young I'd just become a Christian. I came across that verse. I thought, oh great, I've got eternal life. I can live forever now. And then I read that verse and I was a bit disappointed because it's about to know God. I thought, well, I thought it was about living forever. But this is about knowing God. Well, of course, you do live forever, but you do so knowing God. <laughs> you know, that's the key thing. That's what real life is. Knowing God. And this, is, all of this is what the people have given up on. In their covenant commitment to God. Uh, they've lost faithfulness, they've lost steadfast love, they have no knowledge of God. And the absence of those things leads to very practical uh, the very practical sins that appear. And many of them are just taken from the Ten Commandments. So here's the covenantal part: the Ten Commandments, they're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, they break all bounds. And the bloodshed follows bloodshed. You see, this is—he's he's listing not in the order that we're given the Ten Commandments, but he lists uh, five of these Ten Commandments: uh, swearing, the fourth commandment, not just misusing the name of God, but actually not honouring Him in our hearts and taking Him seriously; lying, ninth commandment, uh, living lightly to the truth, bending it, twisting it misrepresenting it, deceiving people, all kinds of lying, uh, murder. And, it's, and I think it really does mean murder here, uh, you know, killing people. And there's something that is desperately tragic about a society that begins to live with murder. Uh, that it just becomes the norm in some places. And it greets it as you know as part of the price of doing business in the modern world or stealing same kind of comment part of doing business adultery and this is interesting because it really stems from a kind of spiritual adultery with God you see you've you've abandoned God and gone after your lover as well, that, that begins to manifest itself in individuals in life beginning to be unfaithful in their marriages and be, begin to have a, commit adultery with other people they're not married to. You know, So you get the breakdown of the marriage bond between a man and a woman in these societies. Now friends, all of this is uh, is pretty dreadful. And I think it could be applied to To many cultures at many times. You see, a a society that loses its spiritual moorings. Where people forget the God who made them. Who has stamped his image on them. Such a society can descend into a mess of, of crime and dishonesty and unfaithfulness. And it's a disaster. It's a tragedy. And not only are there practical consequences of this, uh, there are the consequences that God brings under his covenant. You see, under the old covenant, under Moses, there were specific warnings of disaster for covenant unfaithfulness alongside the blessings for faithfulness. You look up Deuteronomy 28, 29, you see the, the great long list. And this is what we see in the mess that arises. In verse 3, Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. You know, it just, everything seems to fall apart. So this is the controversy that God has with his people. But secondly, let's move on to to verses 4 through to to 10, and we'll pick up the pace a bit uh, now, because... The second point is this, that the blame for this is placed on priests and prophets. The priests and prophets. That's actually the root cause of the woes of the people of Israel. Because that's who he addresses now in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, yet let no one contend and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest, you shall stumble by day. The prophet shall also stumble with you by night. Prophets and priests stumbling along, failing to lead the people. This is the kind of laser focus that God now brings into the the situation where he zooms in on the people who should be leading people spiritually and helping them. You know, priests are the They're the mediators between God and man, if you like. They're the ones who offer the sacrifices and go into the, you know, the chief priest goes into the Holy of Holies once a year, represents the people, confesses their sins and his sins, and uh, once a year he makes atonement for their sins. And so the people can walk away and say, our sins have been forgiven by this gracious God. And the priest is the mediator between God and man. And then the prophets, of course, are, are the ones who bring the word. Now things go in the opposite direction. The, the, the prophets bring the word of God to the people. So God communicates to the people through the prophets. Words of comfort, words of blessing, words of warning. you know, All the things that are necessary to help us to live. And in Israel, these people are held accountable for the state of, of the nation. You know, sometimes when you get together with other Christians, I don't know if you've done this, I've I found myself in this situation uh, several, many times. Uh, you can have, a, you can sit down with other Christians, you can have a, a conversation about the state of the world that we're in. And, uh, the, you know, there's a lot of uh, kind of head shaking and tutting and, you know, how terrible it all is. Um, I've been in pastors' meetings where this has happened, and it's pretty depressing, to be honest with you. But... We can sit there and we can shake our heads and we can tut, tut, tut about the world outside. And we can lament how all these liberal churches that don't preach the gospel are content with doctrinal drift and are content with moral positions that at one time the church knew was wrong. And we can lament all of this. We can shake our heads at the great mass of people out there. But God comes and he speaks to the spiritual leaders of his people. He speaks to ministers. He speaks to elders. Why does he do that? It's because of them, the people lack knowledge. You see that there in verse 6? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. And so it goes on. The reason the people lack knowledge is because the priest and the prophet lack knowledge. And if the priest does not know what he's doing and the prophet doesn't know what he's saying, how can the people know what they're doing and what God is saying to them? You know, it's a it's a dreadful privilege. To be a minister. (laughs) It's a glorious privilege, but it's a dreadful one in another sense. To be a minister, an elder. That's why James says in James chapter 3 verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's no small thing to want to be a teacher in the church of Jesus Christ what a tragedy it is when you have a church with a minister or ministers who are untrained either through spiritual experience or in decent theological education what a tragedy that such a leader could be inflicted on a church what a tragedy that it may be a minister comes to a church to lead or an elder comes and he is not converted to Christ He does not have that new spirit, that new desire, that new love. He's in it for other motives or whatever. What a tragedy. How can these tragic figures ever help the people of God to know God? And it's not as though those effects are are neutral. Because actually such people who are in these positions of privilege are filled with motives that are far from faithful far away from the faithfulness to God that is required and they begin to feed on sins you see that there in verse 8 they feed on the sin of my people they are greedy for their iniquity you know I think sometimes when there's sin in a church there can emerge a kind of collusion together in sinfulness where the pastor's in sin and the people are in sin and there can be a nodding and a winking going on between you and we say, oh, we all know what's going on here but we're not going to say anything, we're not going to do anything. Everyone knows what's going on but no one wants to rock the boat. What kind of situation is that? What a mess. That's what spiritual adultery looks like. And he calls it whoredom. I don't know if you, you were struck as we were reading through the passage how often the idea of whoredom the nation being a whore or people being, acting like whores prostitutes it's shocking you read it, and it has a, this terrible side effect. If you live your life like this, it has this terrible side effect. If you look at verse 10, it says, They shall eat and not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not but not multiply. This deep dissatisfaction. You see, going, going down this route of whoredom, you may think it's a great thing. You may secretly think it's a great thing, but actually it's a kind of it leads to a, to a state where there's deep dissatisfaction. And, and no multiplication. And that's a strange thing, isn't it? But I think it's really to do with one of the covenant blessings of God is is that when the people of God come together they're fruitful and they multiply. You know, That's right back to the Garden of Eden, isn't it? And Noah. Be fruitful and multiply. This is the blessing of God, to multiply, to have children, to have families, and for populations to grow and flourish. But in this kind of society, it doesn't happen, does it? There's no multiplication. All of this begins to disappear. Now, of course, you know, I need to be careful what I say here, but because, of course, there are people who struggle to have children. In our society. But what this is about. Is, is that when. When these kinds of sins. Grip a society. It has an impact. On how fruitful the society is. I, th- I just think it's interesting. I say this in passing. I think it's interesting. That western culture. Which has largely forgotten God. And prizes affluence. And comfort. And security birth rates are falling. Isn't it? Interesting. I'll just leave that there as an observation for you to think about. So, the priests are responsible. But here's the third thing. The people follow their leaders. This is verses 11 through to 19. And the focus here moves now from The spiritual leaders to the population in general, Uh, and there's a there's a kind of eye roll moment there. You know, eye rolling, (laughs) this kind of thing. Look at verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood. You know, (laughs) what a just what a daft thing. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, their you know words of wisdom. (laughs) What a bizarre idea. The foolishness of looking to a piece of wood. For guidance. But the idea is that, you know, in the time of Hosea, seven hundred BC, people would literally carve out an idol and put it on their mantelpiece or, or create or you know, get it out and put make a little shrine with candles and stuff. And, you know, pray maybe to that bit of wood and ask for help from the god that's in front of them, made of wood. And it's just you know the the prophets have a field day laughing at this. You know. Just read it. But it's, this, is, this is what happens. And the thing is, you don't need a bit of wood to do that. You know, John Calvin, in the 15th, 16th century, uh, remarked in his Institutes, in the book one somewhere, I forgot to get the quote, John Calvin remarked that the, the, the human heart is a perpetual idol, factory of idols. The human heart perpetually manufactures idols. We're constantly making things to worship in our hearts. We don't have to make it out of wood. We can make it out of anything. And so that we can turn to those things instead of turning to God. And bearing that in mind, that's why it's so interesting that... He begins to speak in verse 12, the second half, of a spirit of whoredom. A spirit of whoredom. Now, I don't think he's referencing here a, a fallen angel, you know, the spirit. I think what he's re- referencing here is a way of thinking, a spirit, if you like. That the people have adopted this way of thinking, a mindset that's A whole way of uh, a consciousness that has gripped the people that is divorced from God. And I think when you think about it like that, you can see how easy it is, perhaps, to slip into it. Maybe you felt that you have slipped into it in the past. Maybe you're in it now. You have a spirit of whoredom about you. You're forgetting God, but you're putting your trust in other things. Now, those of us who are Christians and believers, you will know that crucial to a healthy Christian life is the state of the mind. Uh, And how you think about things really matters. And of course, when you come to God for the first time, when you're converted, uh, in a sense you do get a new mind and a new spirit. You, You certainly receive the indwelling Holy Spirit from God, but that sets about a train of changing your, your own spirit, if you like. Your way of thinking, your mindset. And that new mind needs to grow and develop. Um, not, sim- not simply intellectually, but spiritually. So Paul the Apostle says in Romans 12:2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, so there's a newness about uh, becoming a Christian. Where we begin to think differently and see the world differently. But there's still a process of transformation that has to happen in the Christian. Uh, in A transformation of the mind. And it's imperative that we are transformed in our minds. And one of, the, one of the curious things about that command in Romans twelve two, is that it's a command on us, but in a sense we are passive. Be transformed, you know. Uh, so it's not telling you to transform yourself, educate yourself, blah blah blah. It's saying be transformed. Which, which I think means that we must not be people who resist the things of God. Instead, we allow ourselves to be transformed by God. We actually welcome it. We actually engage with it. That transformation of heart. And therefore, we avail ourselves of the means that God has given to change us and transform us. To give us that, and make manifest, if you like, that new spirit within us through his word. Listening to God's word. Seeking to apply it to your life. Seeking to believe it with all your heart. That's the new spirit. And if you don't do that. Then you start going in the opposite direction. Where you get sucked into the world. And you begin to think like the world. And you have this increasing syncretism. You begin to kind of accumulate things of the world into your life. um, That are contrary to God. These idols that begin to control you and rule you. Well, without going into all the details, and uh, we could spend a lot of time going through it line by line, but uh, when we get to verse 14, God says, this is a people, the end of verse 14, a people without understanding shall come to ruin. A people without understanding shall come to ruin. Friends, Just let me say in passing, this is how churches decline. Not suddenly, though that can happen. Churches generally don't decline suddenly. Churches decline over generations. where Generation after generation fails to give serious uh, consideration to the things of God. And begins to assume certain things. And actually begin to accumulate a spirit of whoredom. And it begins to set into the church. And before you know it, the church is in a death spiral. You see this all over the country? You see it in places that are huge buildings that are empty, or huge buildings that have a small elderly congregation because they've, they've not sought to be transformed by the grace of God. While well, the people follow their priests. Well, finally, the priests are guilty. And here we're into chapter 5. And God announces his judgment. We're just very briefly going to touch this. God announces his judgment. And the judgment's an interesting one. Because it's not the fire and brimstone kind of judgment that you might think. Um, rather, it is that priests have to live with the consequences of the lives that they lead. Uh, you see this in verse 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to God. There comes a point, you see, where uh, you could be so steeped in the spirit of whoredom that there is no longer any way back. And so he says in verse 6, With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. You know, that's a, that's a terrifying thought. That there may come a point where God withdraws himself from a people. You know, it's one of the great puzzles, I think, of our lives as Christians that we all know people who have come across the gospel and yet they don't respond to the gospel. And even if they do show a modicum of interest and maybe come to a service or something or or are willing to have a conversation about the gospel, And on the face of it seem to be seeking God, yet they may may in the end seem to be unmoved by it. Um, The basic problem may be this, that God has withdrawn from them. Now it's not for us to identify who those people are. That's for God. We've got to keep trying to bring the gospel to people, to take the opportunities that arise before us. But it's a terrifying thought, isn't it? That God might have given someone many opportunities to turn to him, uh, to repent of sins, to trust in him. But those opportunities one day come to an end. And there'll be no more opportunities. Friends, I hope there's nobody here this evening who's in that kind of situation. But let me close with one last encouragement because it's all been unremittingly miserable, isn't it? <laughs> let me just think with you. One little note of joy in this. And maybe this is the last encouragement you receive in Hazir for a while. <laughs> but who knows? Uh, and maybe, you know, m- much more seriously, maybe it's the last encouragement you will receive as a person. this will be the last time you'll have the chance to come to him. Go back to 4 verse 1. Look at this statement. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And it's such a sad statement. There is no faithfulness and steadfast love. And that's a phrase that actually appears time and time again in the Old Testament um, uh, scriptures in relationship to God's covenant with his people. Faithfulness and steadfast love. The Hebrew words are emeth w'hesed. Emeth, truth, w'hesed, covenant faithfulness or steadfast love. And it's a wonderful phrase, you know, look out for it. steadfast love and faithfulness. And there's a, there's a New Testament Greek translation of that. "charitos uh, kai aletheos. Aletheus is truth. Any, if you know anybody called Aletheia, they're called that because it's truth. Uh, and charis and as well. Charitos kai aletheas. And when you translate that into English and you find it in the New Testament, it's grace and truth. And here's the thing no matter to what extent we have fallen short of that glory of grace and truth in our lives as god points out here there is one who has it all jesus christ john chapter 1 verse 14 that famous verse about how he took flesh upon himself we have seen his glory Full of grace and truth. caritos kai aletheia. Emeth It's in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. He is, whatever you lack, He is able to give that to you. If you come to Him. He is the answer to your unfaithfulness and your lack of steadfast love. He is the one whom God has provided to make up for what you lack and provide everything you need. So come to him. This may be the last opportunity you, some of you may have. Come to him and receive from Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Uh, the sternness of your word and the honesty of it we pray that you would help us to search our own hearts in the light of your word but lords we pray most of all that you would lead us to uh, the source of all grace and truth which is jesus christ in his name we pray amen